0: Hi everyone, I'm Tom Jenkins, Fire Chief with the City of Rogers, Arkansas, and the IASC President in 2017 to 2018.
1: And I'm Sheldon Gilbert, former Fire Chief of the Alameda County California Fire Department, and now Chief Executive Officer of Emergency Services Consulting International, or as we like to go by, ESCI.
0: And this is the i chiefs Podcast. If you're searching for new ideas, looking to improve your leadership skills, and wanting to make a difference within your organization, this is the podcast for you.
1: We encourage you to join us as we engage with fire service leaders who discuss the challenges and opportunities facing you and your agency.
0: Welcome to another episode. Of the iChiefs podcast series. Today we vis- visit a topic that uh, when you look at the KnowledgeNet forums on the IFC website or you go to conferences it's a it's a topic that you hear regularly and I think uh, to a lot of fire chiefs especially those fire chiefs that are um, leading departments that do transport ambulance service it's it's a difficult one to sometimes get your arms around, and that is this concept of mobile integrated health and community paramedicine. And if there's anything I've learned in my travels and my time visiting with fire chiefs and colleagues across the country, it's that whatever that term means to you is likely different or is slightly altered in other communities because it has to do with, with addressing the need and the risk and the problems in certain localities and so it just makes sense that uh while uh while you may be familiar with your own system or or somebody else's system if you've only seen one system then you've just only seen one system and so we have a guest today who is going to tell us um about the the growth and the potential and all the good things happening in Gainesville Florida and so we're excited to have her with us and of course I'm joined by Sheldon Gilbert my co-host
1: thanks Tom and it's um Pleasure to be here again with you and with our audience and uh, with Ariella Bach today. And uh, as you were saying, um, there are just a number of mobile integrated healthcare programs that are unique and different. We had a great opportunity to talk to uh, Houston and what they were doing. But this is a very unique program in Gainesville, Florida, where this was very organically grown from the ground up, customized to the needs of the the Gainesville uh, and surrounding communities' needs, um and Ariella uh, from the beginning uh has been um really the, the, the catalyst behind much of this development. She is a uh, um she has holds a master's degree in health administration. She's in a basic EMT national registered and she's the program director for Gainesville Fire Rescue's community resource paramedicine program. She she it's unique that she launched this program as a student at the University of Florida six years ago um and she designed the interventions and deployed uh, that with the patients while while completing her bachelor's degree in public health so she has since put together this community paramedicine team and defined the role of community paramedicine in, in Gainesville Florida and she continues to work to redefine the paradigm of EMS and the pertinent role of paramedics uh and and what they call community resource uh um EMTs in the, in the uh, in the community so we're uh, honored to have you with us today Ariella Thank you for joining us, and uh, maybe you can just tell us from your perspective about the Gainesville Fire Department's Community Paramedic or Mobile Integrated Healthcare Program.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I would be honored to, and thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Um, like you said, I came to Gainesville Fire Rescue about six years ago uh, while being a student at the University of Florida, and at the time, I was pursuing a nursing degree Uh, except that wasn't really working out in my favor. And that's really where I found my passion and love for EMS. So I was working in a, you know, boots on the ground fashion uh, on a transport unit called uh, a critical care unit, uh, doing a lot of inter-facility work, running 911s and seeing firsthand how fragmented and broken the system was. You know, I saw our high-utilizer patients, Cycling back and forth from uh, EMS, the hospital, and not being able to access the care that they needed. And that's when I knocked on the door of Gainesville Fire Rescue. It took a couple times for them to take me as a volunteer because there really was no volunteer based services there. Um, And they asked me, you know, are you a firefighter? Which I responded, no, I have no fire training. And they said, well, you know, what are you doing here? We don't really have any use for you. And finally, uh, Chief Hill House, the chief of training at the time, said, figure out what this community paramedicine stuff is. Um, And we've we've certainly heard that that trend over the past few years. But like you said in, in the intro, it means something different to every community. And a lot of fire departments especially are having a hard time being able to figure out their place in that. So for the Gainesville program, what we found in doing a needs assessment with our community, um, we found that a lot of the needs that the community members have lie within social determinants of health. This is the social components that then negatively usually affect health, whether that's zip code, education level, access to care, housing, transportation, uh, food insecurity, just to name a few. And we found that uh, a majority of our high-utilizer patients had uh, core social determinants of health, negative social determinants of health, and that was the one big factor in their inability to seek appropriate care. So, you know, what we've done is train our society to dial those three numbers, and you're going to get a magnitude of resources that show up in a very short amount of time. So... Community paramedicine in Gainesville had a couple of different components. Firstly, to tackle the social determinant of health piece. We wanted to be the connecting resource uh, between the patient, the healthcare system, and the community-based service. And the other thing was a health education piece. We needed to retool and retrain our community to better access and navigate their own care. And then the third component of our program at the time of development was to Work with the healthcare system and just be a resource and a tool and uh, defragment uh, our, our local health system. So, what we've done is create a team of a, a community paramedic and what we refer to as a resource technician. A resource technician is a social service minded person. Uh, that accompanies the paramedic when they're visiting their high-utilizer patients. And it is their role to be able to navigate what resources are appropriate to build the patient's capacity and, uh, over time, allow them to diminish their use of the 911 system and and the uh, acute hospital services and just build their capacity to allow them access to primary care and uh, additional resources.
0: Okay, I think I have two questions, Sheldon, so I'm gonna cheat uh for our normal format um because you said a couple of things that just really strike me number one is that you are you non fire service non e m s um pedigree you know uh, at least you know the trajectory you were on with your career and as a fire chief and uh, I think a lot of my colleagues would say the same thing. The first question I have is, you know, your roles and responsibilities when you developed and established the program at first, it almost it sounded, and I don't remember if and I may be gleaning this from one of our initial conversation, um, but it kind of sounded like they just tossed you the keys and told you to learn how to drive the car almost, that you really had to develop a lot of this <laughs> on your own. And, and and certainly your roles and responsibilities and your skill set that made you successful then that's evolved because now you're operating that system you're you're measuring data improving measuring improving so you know as a fire chief I sometimes wonder like it's not as easy as just finding a a captain or a chief level officer and sticking them in some newly uh, developed a uh, role in saying, hey, we want to do mobile integrated health, make it happen. It's You've got to get the right person who's passionate about it. And so can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the skill sets that helped you, the, the the ingredients that you had that have made Gainesville, um, you know, just, I mean, I, I think it's a model program. I'm, I, and obviously I put my money where my mouth is because you're here. I wanted to bring you on here to talk to you. So tell us about your roles and responsibilities. And then I have one other question uh, before we continue.
2: Yeah, I think what you touched on was so beautiful. I see this happening in a lot of different fire systems, especially where a fire chief says to, you know, an EMS chief, figure out what this is and just go and run with it. And I have to say, Gainesville was a true grassroots program. I started with a one patient at a time basis where I was able to build not only my own capacity, but understand what community resources I had available and also learn the fire system at the same time because I was brand new. And I will say a lot of that success at the the infancy stages had to deal with the leadership that was around me. So, um, You know, I was not necessarily tossed the keys. I had a lot of really wonderful leadership. I worked very closely with our uh, EMS captain at the time and along with a champion paramedic who decided that he wanted to pioneer this for Gainesville as well. Um, And that's, I would say, a lesson that I learned was you need to find the champion that can build the system. But that champion might not be one of your captains in leadership. It might need to be something that you find within your department and then build that person's capacity within your leadership team. Um, And that was certainly my experience. You know, I was given the resources. uh, I had access to people in the department. I had access to safety tools like a radio And really, they they said, you know, let's set a schedule whenever you're going to come in and let's decide what we're going to do here. So we decided on a a one-patient-at-a-time capacity, and every day it was just making contact with that patient and then following the needs all the way through before we started to work on another case, where we ultimately build tools and systems along the way. So I would take a look at, if, if I were a fire chief wanting to implement a program of this nature in my department, you have to follow the passion initially at first, because this is not something that can just happen during daily operating hours. You know, I was answering my phone at two o'clock in the morning because we're working with the most fragile patients in our community, so we needed to make sure that it was working, and we needed a a champion who was going to you know put bear the weight of the program on on it was my shoulders at the time so, you know, go around the department and look for who is interested in something like this. You need buy-in from the department first and foremost. And then, you know, you bring the the rest of the leadership team in on what's going on and, you know, give them some operating protocols and you can see what organically grows. That's what I would say that um, my recommendation would be. As far as my roles and responsibilities, that's certainly evolved over the years. You know, I went from... Starting and running one program. So now, under the umbrella of community paramedicine, we have about four uh, four programs that are up and running between chronic disease management, uh, community health, uh, addiction-based recovery, and things of that nature. So, uh, my roles have evolved. I would say, first and foremost, I'm leading a team of about uh, over 15 people, and. The community paramedicine team is only going to be as successful as uh, however I, I tool those people. So I make sure that my staff is heard, that they have all of their needs met, that they have you know, computers and uniforms and um, things of that nature. I staff the program, so I'm responsible for all of the training of our paramedics. Our paramedics come to us based on an overtime status. Uh, so we know for any given week, we are scheduling patient visits two to three times a week. We're doing right now, we're in the midst of our COVID-19 vaccines for homebound, our uh, homebound population. So we're scheduling for that as well as like our uh, planning for our flu vaccines. So I'm I'm scheduling and making sure my staff has their resources um, like you said, data mining, I'm constantly looking at data. Uh, how many patients are we serving? How many citizens have we touched this year? How many people have we enrolled? How many resources have we paired? Uh, and then I think, you know, really looking at data to lead the program. So before we go ahead and just decide that we want to launch a recovery-based program to help people in addiction, let's look at the data. Let's look at our 911 calls. Are we are we responding to more overdose-related uh, incidents, things of that nature. So a lot of data mining. Um, and then I would say a core piece of my job is innovation. So the the reason that we are so successful and housed under the fire department so beautifully is because we're a nimble system. And, you know, I have to have a pulse on the needs of the community so that we can adjust and adapt our um, methods for response. And that was really key during times of COVID when we had to respond and react right away to what the, the changing needs of the community are. Um so I would say those are the big responsibilities that I have.
1: Okay, I love
0: that. That is that's the kind of feedback that fire chiefs need to hear. You're spot on. And uh I wanna I want to reiterate a couple of points that I think my colleagues need to hear because I need to because <laughs> I need to hear them too. And one was that you said you have to follow the passion, that you can't – getting a full-time employee to, to do it and make it their job doesn't mean it's going to be successful. You have to find somebody that that cares, and you have to find somebody that gives a crap about it. And and that's clear in my conversations with you that you're one of those people. I think the other, the other thing besides passion that's a key ingredient is I love that you said a nimble system, that you have to have a system that can course correct, that is – Uh, you know, obviously big enough to make an impact, but, but dynamic enough and maneuverable enough that you can, you can address the ever-changing needs of the community. And both of those are wonderful, um, wonderful assessments on why you've been successful. Uh, My second question, my follow-up, and and then I want to, I want to get back to the conversation, is you use, you you have this um, resource tech. And I've heard of I've heard of social workers being paired with paramedics for programs like this, but you you definitely decided that while social work was a component, it's an ingredient to the problems you're trying to address, you've opted not to do that. You've definitely opted to do something else. You called them resource techs. Can you expand a little bit on – on um, why you chose that methodology what what kinds of people are these i mean so if if i like that idea as a fire chief how do how do i add resource text to to my menu of things i offer my community how does that work so can you kind of walk us through that a little bit
2: sure and i wish i had like a a really fancy answer that i could tell you that well looking at the data we decided but honestly it was just a matter of analyzing our resources and when i was starting the program 6 years ago you know i certainly was not Qualified as a, as a social worker, but I knew how to hustle and grind. And for speaking only to the community that I serve in Gainesville, that was where the need lies. You know, I was working with the social workers at the community-based clinics, um, but what really was lacking was just the the drive to help these people navigate the resources that already existed. And Um, I myself at the time was nothing but a student. So that's kind of where that role grew from. So um, what we're doing is we're training student volunteers. So I have about 15 volunteers every semester. And we partner with University of Florida uh, through their health disparities minor program, through their health education and behavior program, public health. That's where I'm pulling these champion students from and then teaching them how to work in this capacity um, where we then have carved out this mechanism for employment if they so wish and if, you know, we so wish at the end of the day. But it's created this beautiful synergistic relationship with the University of Florida for able to employ their students uh, eventually. And we've done so, uh, let's see, five times now. So we've employed five of their students to fill these uh, resource technician roles um and like i said it it just came from a place of uh, not having resources so at the time the program was unfunded and that's what we had so we called them a resource technician and we just trained them to to fill that need
1: that is a phenomenal approach and and um I would I would only say that I would never refer as just a student. You you are a highly motivated, passionate professional that leveraged your education with your deliverables, and that is uh, something to be commended. And and I think something that we can all learn from, and and really engage these individuals coming up who have a passion for what you're doing. Um, you mentioned that you you uh, you, you mind the data to kind of get to where you are as it relates to what you're offering. And I really like the fact that you emphasize the need to be nimble to move where the data takes you. So can you share with us a couple things? One, what are a couple, two or three top priorities that you got through mining the data? Two, what kind of data are you collecting to do that? And then and then the part B of that would be, uh, are you looking at just a performance or outcomes or both? So those would be the questions I have as it relates to what you're what you're addressing.
2: Sure. So as far as specific examples of, um, you know, needs that we found through looking at the data, I think the direction that we initially received from leadership in the city was figure out the high utilizer problem. Everyone in the healthcare system nationwide is trying to figure out, you know, how do we diminish utilization from the highest of utilizers? And what the data showed us was once someone actually gets to that status where they're calling 911, you know, more than one time per week or whatever it is for, for your version of how you utilize is, it, it's defined differently in every community, um, they're, I don't want to say a lost cause, but you're going to be throwing a lot more resources at that person versus someone who you can catch just starting to ramp up their utilization. So in initially, you know, launching this program, we were targeting high utilizers. And we kind of switched gears from that person to someone who is just starting to lose capacity and ramp up their um, 911 and and hospital utilization. And that was purely a uh, data-directional-driven decision. Uh, So that was one really good example. The other example I can think of is when we started working with the high-utilizer population, like I said, it, it was throwing a ton of resources at a, a very fragile patient population. And what we, what the feedback I got from the doctors in the in the healthcare system was, this person's just non-compliant. They're non-compliant. I heard that labeled all the time. And at one point, I was working with this one woman in her mid forties with a uh she had a diagnosis of gastroparesis and I was so frustrated. I mean just when I thought I was getting somewhere with her case, a door would come up and, and I'd hit another endpoint. And I just remember coming back to the headquarters so frustrated to where my fire chief well I was venting to him one uh one day. It was my sorry, my EMS captain at the time. He said, You need to document this and we went through this woman's whole case, and what we found was it, it wasn't her being non-compliant; It was the system not being able to serve her, um, and this was a, a good example that we kind of found in action. I wasn't looking for the data. I just tracked it as I was going through it and, and helping her. Um, we, in the end, were able to reduce utilization by 70%, but... The entire time that I was navigating this case, it was constantly navigating, you know, the doctor sending the prescription to the wrong Mm -hmm. place and the transportation van not showing up and, you know, her getting switched from one clinic to another without actually telling the patient and, you know, things that really the patient had no control of, uh, but she was constantly labeled as this non-compliant person. And it was a big slap in the face to us. And honestly, to so the healthcare system as a whole, we we since developed a timeline of what this person's experience was like in our community paramedicine program. And now I've gone over, uh, you know, to our our local hospitals, I've gone to different conferences and presented that case study to hopefully open people's eyes. Um, as to the the problems that we have in our own healthcare system, but also to realize that it's not always the patient's fault, which I think people are so quickly uh, placing blame on. That's excellent. Um, And then as far as what kind of data we're looking at, uh, it really depends right now. Like I said, we have a, a couple of different programs, but the data that I look at most often is, you know, obviously basic demographics, zip code, age, uh, gender, we're constantly looking at uh, their needs, so where where are the biggest needs in our community? Is it with housing? Is it with mental health? And as you can imagine, those are shifting. Uh, we're constantly looking at our ability to be able to match those needs to resources. We're looking at how many of our paramedic uh, firefighters are actually interested in being a part of this program, how many of them complete the training. Uh, We're looking at definitely a cost component to the cost of care versus, uh, you know, with or without getting this type of intervention. We've done a couple of um, uh, randomized trials of folks in our healthcare system who are are able to receive the the community paramedicine intervention versus those who don't. Uh, We look at 911 data. We look at primary care data, and I think that's been the most interesting to look at. Initially, you know, when, when speaking to the CEO of the hospital, we got uh, the feedback of, well, I need data, I need numbers, I'm a numbers guy. Well, that's all great and all, but we found that there was some data that really wasn't being tracked by our healthcare system at all, and that was compliance. So we started keeping track of how many patients prior to utilizing CR our, our community paramedicine program, we, we call CRP or community resource paramedicine, how many patients before using CRP were missing uh, doctor's appointments versus how many do they miss now? And and we call that compliance. So we track uh, that. And really, that's a number that shows us that this is not just a Band-Aid solution. By connecting them with a primary care physician or their medical home, we're then building a relationship that will sustain the rest of that patient's life. And we've increased primary care compliance by 22%. So we're really wow. proud of that number.
1: Yeah, you should be. That's good stuff. And, and yeah, then outcomes all on. I mean, we're, this is... we're
2: definitely tracking as well.
1: So give us, I mean,
0: this, listening to you and talk about, especially when you have an opportunity to not just create a program, but run it and then allow it to evolve, which is a cool story. And really over a pretty short amount of time, um there's no this is fascinating to me so one of the things i'd like to challenge you to do um is this is the kind of information that we'd love to have at our annual conference and i hope somebody from the program planning committee is listening to this podcast but you really should consider um you know sharing this with fire chiefs because i think that more in depth and some audio visual with this story would be powerful but knowing that we have we're coming close to our allotted time i was I was wondering if you wouldn't mind – what are some – if you had to think of just a couple of key takeaways, that if you have a fire chief who's listening to this podcast and it's got their attention because we all have people that are frequent flyers. We all have people that – we all have communities, rather, that have underserved populations and – you know, increasing demands on EMS because people, like you say, have grown accustomed to dialing 911 to solve basically every ailment they have. What are some key takeaways that if that fire chief, uh, you know, if, if the problems you described that you encountered in Gainesville resonate with them, what are some key takeaways that you would offer if they're interested in developing a program like you had? Yeah, good question.
2: I would say first and foremost, recognize that you will not be able to solve the world's problems by yourself. So finding key partners will be will mean the difference in success and failure. Um, you know, who in your, your area, your city, your county, who is getting things done? And I think some of the stuff that I found out was it was the unlikely champions. Some of these champions were the secretaries at the doctor's office who were you know, basically sneaking patients in uh, to be seen. So, who are your champions? Partner with those people um, and then innovate. So, don't be afraid to do something that hasn't been done before or do something in a way that maybe you feel isn't noteworthy. For a long time, we felt, uh, or I'll speak for myself, I felt like A lot of the stuff that we were doing was not rocket science. It was not necessarily difficult. It wasn't stuff that wasn't being done in other capacities, but it was working. And I think those small successes consistently is what builds the program, not a big make or break moment. So you don't have to design a fancy program. You just need to work with people one at a time. And over time that will evolve. Uh, So that would be my number two. And I would say, you know, go beyond traditional EMS fire structure. You know, I'm a living testament to the capacity that students can have uh, in being able to make an impact. And you might not find people in your department currently that want to take this on. So who can you go to to bring that to the fire department? And I think lastly, and it kind of goes hand in hand with that, is um, culture needs to evolve. So Firstly, you know, Gainesville Fire Rescue is is a traditional fire EMS-based uh, department. And I can tell you as a 19-year-old standing up at a paramedic in-service, telling them that, you know, we're now doing community paramedicine, I was pretty much laughed out of the room at some point. And it just took consistent building, consistent coming around to the departments, consistently sharing wins to now we're at the point where in every new firefighter uh, orientation, we're speaking about community paramedicine as just as it's something that we do. It's now embedded in our culture, and that took quite a while. So um, don't let that be something that deters you, but find a way around it and and get the buy-in right up front from your department members.
0: Well, so many of your points, I think, transcend this this topic and apply to others. But uh, it's been fantastic to get get to know you, and I certainly appreciate you spending some time with Sheldon and I today recording this podcast because I know um, that it's a hot topic for fire chiefs, and it's one that, you know, there's not a chapter in the essentials manual when you're going through the fire academy or there's not a a day in the EFO curriculum that you talk about these things specifically. You have to learn from your peers, and to see a a city like Gainesville go through it and and, um, the kind of success that they've had, um, it, 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 it kind of charges my battery, so to speak. So we've been listening to Ariella Bach. She's the program director for the Gainesville Fire and Rescue in Gainesville, Florida, about community paramedicine, their community resource paramedicine program there, and the lessons learned and the successes they've had. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the iCheese podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for this iCheese podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or Spotify, where you can subscribe and be sure to never miss a show.
1: If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next month.